All right, what is up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Capo Podcast. I left off last week <clears throat> with this idea, my my optimistic idea of the American Renaissance and how that is the basically the only answer if we want to uh, pull the emergency brake on this train that's headed toward the cliff. So, uh, what I what I thought would be good to do in a I don't know if I can do it all in one podcast. It's probably going to end up being two or three at least. Um, But I want to talk about what that looks like, what the American Renaissance looks like. And uh, I'm going to have to get it more in depth into how we do that. How, how How do we facilitate some sort of renaissance for the culture? Um... And where does all of that start? And if we're talking about a reawakening kind of a, of Western civilization and all that, we have to start somewhere. And uh, the question is, what is the, what's the first thing we need to learn about? Well, we need to learn about the, the foundations of Western civilization. And there's kind of three main foundations of what we call Western civilization. And that is uh, the Judeo-Christian moral ideas that we all you know, shared at some point. We have that, Judeo-Christian moral thought. You have Greek and Roman philosophy and Greek and Roman ideas. And then last you have kind of a European history, the Renaissance and the Reformation and the Enlightenment and all that good stuff. And between those three things, you end up with with what we call Western civilization. Uh, but where do you where do you start when you when you go into that? Um, Judeo Christian moral ideas are probably probably the most important foundation of the civilization. At least that's my opinion, and uh, that's what I wrote in a long way back to Zion, my book. And I, I truly believe that to be the case. I think that Judeo-Christian moral ideas are the most important foundation for our society. But I don't, I don't think that's the best place to start for what we're, what we're trying to accomplish here. This, and this is going to be largely an educational... Yeah, unlike last week. Last week was kind of a political rant. This week, this is going to be more educational. And... Because I want to take kind of an educational approach, I want to start at a kind of a logical timeline. And if we're going to do that, we need to start with the Greeks. Uh, We need to start with Socrates and Plato. And I'm going to talk about Socrates and, and Plato in tandem. Because Socrates really left no text behind for us to read. And all we know about him, we know through his students. And Plato is the greatest among Socrates' students, the most famous, the, the one that we, the, we read about the most. So if we, want this, uh, if we want this American Renaissance, we need to read some Plato, and we need to talk about Plato and his ideas. What we're going to do first is we're going to talk about uh, a couple different allegories that Plato wrote about. And when Plato writes, he's almost always talking about things that Socrates said. And so the first one 
is Plato's allegory of the cave. And um, I want to read part of it so that you, you understand how, you know, if you go read it yourself, which I think that's what you should do, but I can read it and I can kind of explain what's going on and give you, you know, Plato's allegory of the cave in, I don't know, time me. Let's try to do it in five minutes or so. All right, so let me pull that up and I will read directly from it. Socrates said, Imagine this. People live under the earth in a cave-like dwelling. Stretching a long way up toward the daylight is the entrance, toward which the entire cave is gathered. The people have been in this dwelling since childhood, shackled by the legs and the neck. Thus they stay in the same place, so that there is only one thing for them to look at, whatever they encounter in front of their faces. But because they are shackled, they are unable to turn their heads around. So, this is how Plato's Allegory of the Cave starts. And instead of reading the entire thing to you, I'll give you the the gist, the rundown. In the allegory, he writes about Socrates' dialogue on humanity as prisoners in a cave. Mankind is like these prisoners in a cave. And they're in the bottom of this cave, they're shackled and immobile. All they can see is the cave wall in front of them by this dim reflection of a fire behind them. So behind them, uh, between them and the fire, objects are carried and people walk along this kind of causeway and they speak and they cast shadows on the wall in front of the prisoners. Now because they can't move or see anything else, these prisoners come to the conclusion that what they see on the cave wall is real. The shadows on the wall are their reality, and that is their entire existence. Then, Socrates says to imagine that one of these prisoners is set free and turned around toward the fire that's creating the shadows. The prisoner is confused, the light hurts his eyes, he's disoriented, Uh, he knows his reality is challenged, and this causes kind of distress and pain because he's not used to looking at light directly. Now, if given the opportunity, he's going to turn back to the cave wall and return to what he knows. But he's not allowed to do that. Instead, he is drug up the mouth of the cave, kicking and screaming, and he's taken out into the sunlight outside the cave. And the effect is pain, rage, and blindness. He is unaccustomed to the sun and the outside world. He can't see any of it. The light hurts his eyes, and he's in, he's in a state of confusion and anger. But over the course of days he is able to begin to see things. His eyes start to adjust. First, he can see shadows and reflections, because that's what he's used to in the cave. Then he can see things at night, uh, trees and birds, and finally like the, the dome of the heavens and the stars. Then he can see that the shadows and the reflections are not the actual things, but they are just that, shadows and reflections. He can finally see things for what they are. He can see them in the daylight. And then finally, he comes to a bit of enlightened wisdom. And this is the sun. This thing he could not perceive because of its brightness at first. 
finally he can see it. And he sees and understands that it is the sun that is the the thing that causes all the rest of the world around him to exist and work. Without the sun, none of none of this would work. And he reaches this kind of uh, enlightened state of understanding that. He reaches freedom and enlightenment. You know, the birds are chirping, the the trees are pretty and green and he's he's living now instead of being distressed and confused, he's now in a state of like happiness and enlightenment. And then he thinks of his fellow man back in the cave. And he feels like he must go back and tell them. He must go and try to free his uh, fellow prisoners. So he goes back in the cave. But once he's inside, he can't really see his old reality anymore. He can't see the shadows on the wall because his eyes won't adjust to the dark. And the prisoners, because he can't kind of perceive their reality, they reject him and they call him insane. And then finally, the the question is asked, the final question of the allegory is asked, is uh, Socrates says, if, if the prisoners could get a hold of him, wouldn't they want to kill him? And the answer is, absolutely they would. And that is the allegory of the cave. And it explains a, a great piece of human nature and wisdom. So through Plato, Socrates tells us that this is what enlightenment feels like. Once one becomes enlightened and he tries to teach his fellow man, he's not loved for it. You are not welcomed with open arms for bringing people to a sort of enlightenment. And in fact, if you, if you find like the whole world cheering for you, chances are you probably aren't on the like the doorstep of enlightenment instead if you are truly kind of bringing cold hard reality to the world they're gonna want to kill you now ironically what happens to socrates well socrates is put to death by the the greek government and why do they put him to death well they put him to death for teaching for enlightening, for corrupting the youth of Greece. They make him drink hemlock poison. They put him to death. Now, why did we start here when we're talking about kind of the foundations of Western civilization? It's because Greek thought is kind of the, the, this is where it starts. These are the guys that shape our philosophy for thousands of years to come. And this is why this is why people say that Western civilization rests on the the pillars of Socrates and Jesus, and that's that's not an understatement. We get so much of our ideas from from the Greeks and the and then later the Romans that Socrates and Jesus are kind of two the two main kind of starting points of our philosophical thought. Now, another allegory that Plato gives is called the allegory of the chariot. And it goes like this. And I'll once again I'll I'll read this one kind of verbatim and I'll read this the whole one on this one. And I'll kind of stop and talk about it as I go. So he says, of the nature of the soul, though her true form be ever a theme of large and more than mortal discourse, let me speak briefly and in a figure. And let the figure be composite, a pair of winged horses and a charioteer. 
Now the winged horses and the charioteers of the gods are all of them noble and of noble descent, but those of the other races are mixed. The human charioteer drives his in a pair, and one of them is noble and of noble breed, and the other is ignoble and of ignoble breed, and the driving of them them necessarily gives him great deals of trouble. I will endeavor to explain to you in what way the mortal differs from the immortal. The soul in her totality has the care of the inanimate being everywhere, and traverses the whole of the heavens in divers forms appearing. The soul is considered collectively, when perfect and fully winged she soars upward and orders the whole world, whereas the imperfect soul, losing her wings and drooping in her flight, at last settles on the solid ground, there finding a home. She receives an earthly frame which appears to be self-moved, but is really moved by her power. And this composition of the soul and body is called a living and mortal creature. For immortal, no such union can be reasonably believed to be, although fancy, not having seen nor surely known the nature of God, may imagine an immortal creature having both a body and also a soul, which are united throughout all time. Let that, however, be as God wills, and he be spoken of accordingly, or acceptingly to him. And now let us ask the reason why the soul loses her wings. The wing is the corporeal element, which is most akin to the divine, and which by nature tends to soar aloft and carry that which gravitates downward to the upper region, which is the habitation of the gods. The divine is beauty, wisdom, goodness, and the like. And by these things the wing of the soul is nourished, and it grows apace. But when fed upon evil and foulness and the opposite of good, it wastes and falls away. Okay, so, in this, Plato gives us a vision of the soul of man. And the soul of man, he says, is like a chariot pulled by one divine and heavenly horse, and this other, he calls it an ignoble horse. But you can think of it as kind of like one kind of beautiful white winged horse, And the other one is kind of a a black, maybe an an evil horse. And this leaves man suspended between heaven and earth. Now, Christians would explain this as mankind being made in the image of God, but also having a sinful, fallen nature. And keep in mind, this this is, you know, a couple thousand B.C. This is before... The Greeks don't have any real interaction with the Christians. It's not like they collaborated and came up with this together. But they kind of come to the same conclusion. And it's this Plato is giving us this vision of uh, mankind having a divine spark and also a heart of darkness. And that is the nature of mankind, he says. It's the nature of mankind's soul. Part of it is divine, and part of it is capable of, you know, evil. And if there's if there's a more important piece of wisdom that we learn from both the Greeks and Judeo-Christian thought, I don't know what it is. Human nature, in its most basic form, it's it's just very simple, and it's very true, and it's eternal. And all of our kind of great mistakes come from not understanding our own human nature or thinking that we can change it. And 
you see in the Greeks, and then also, once again, also in the Judeo-Christian side, this, it's not even a belief. It's just a a truth that they observed and revealed that humans have a touch of divinity and they also have this touch of evil and we're capable of both simultaneously. And we are eternally capable of that. And all of us are capable of that. It's not... Uh, it's not something we can change. Now, this is the reason I call this kind of an American Renaissance, is because during the European Renaissance, the thing that made such a, you know, like a societal success was because all of all of the Europeans went back to the Greeks, and they started to read them again, and they started to relearn all this stuff. And... That is what we need to do. That's why I'm telling you about the allegory of the cave and the allegory of the chariot and the idea of uh, the human soul. We uh, Now, I'm giving you a really sped up, quick version of it, and you should go read some Plato on your own. Um, you need to try to understand the things they're saying because there's this, uh, there's this string there's this pattern of thought, and you can follow it from Socrates and Plato and the Greeks through all of kind of Roman history and European history, and you can follow it all the way to the founding of America when it comes to this philosophical thought. But that brings me to kind of a, a, a new point that's not philosophy, because philosophy isn't the only thing the Greeks give us. The Greeks give us a whole bunch of ideas. Um, and one of them you can see at the end of that uh, that thing about the soul, when they're talking about the divine. The Greeks view the divine, the heavenly, the good, as having to do with, with beauty and wisdom. This is why you see um, all the old the Greek nude marble statues are objectively beautiful. It's because they believed beauty was was next to godliness, and they think to to be beautiful was was a piece of the divine. This is why the Greeks were really big into like uh, trying to be physically fit and trying to to appear to make yourself as good as you possibly could, because they they viewed that as a a divine pursuit. And I think we could learn a little something from that. I mean, look at look at uh, our modern kind of role models for kids. Like we have Lizzo, and she looks like a land whale. But I don't want to get off on on all that stuff. I want to stage try to stay on task here. So the next thing I want to talk about with the Greeks was is a is a political thing. Now, democracy was invented by the Greeks. This idea of a form of government that wasn't just a simple dictatorship of the, like the strong man of whoever was the strongest dude is going to be chief, and then that evolves into okay, now you're warlord, now you're king. This was the way of humanity for like ever and ever and ever. And the Greeks come along and they say, no, we have this, we have this new idea. Let's try this thing called democracy. So the root word of democracy comes directly from the Greeks. It comes from demos is Greek for people and kratos is Greek for power. So democracy literally means uh, like power of the people. 
Now, what the Greeks found out was that democracy had some advantages, but they never could really get it to work in the, in the long term. It always turned into a sort of mob rule of the majority. But they did give later peoples kind of something to build off of. Not only with philosophy of thought, but also with like their literal government structure. Because when you know Greece eventually kind of falls apart as an empire, and then the, the Romans come along after that, and the Romans look at Greek democracy, and they kind of improve on it, and enter the Romans and their republic. So now I'm going to shift gears from the Greeks to the Romans. Now, Rome didn't start as a republic. There is a there's like a creation myth of Rome, or not a creation myth, but like a there's a founding myth of Rome, and the myth is that Rome started with uh, two brothers who were raised in the wild and like suckled by a wolf, and then one founded the city of Rome after killing the other. Romulus kills Remus, and he founds the city of Rome. And then the myth goes that Rome increases its population by taking in exiles and fugitives from other areas. So Rome becomes kind of this rough, savage, like bad men town. And they form this city. And then they look around at each other and they realize they're all a bunch of kind of rough savage dudes and there's no women around so they they go and they take women from their neighbors in sabine they kill their husbands and they take the women as their own wives and then rome has this kind of very violent savvy uh, savage and rapey origin and then rome is founded as a city and rome becomes a very powerful city run by kind of a series of kings Until, and this happens about 500 BC, the Romans overthrow their king and then drawing inspiration from the Greeks, they form a new type of government. Now, this is the beginning of the Roman Republic. And they try to solve this mob rule of democracy by introducing a, a representative republic instead. Regions vote for and pick senators to represent their interest in the government. And in Latin, this is res publica. And this is Latin and it means public matter. And that refers to like the whole state. So when we're learning about our system of government in the West, the system of governments in you know, Europe and America, what you need to understand is that we, especially in America, we drew from Greek democracy and Roman Republic as a, as a guide for the organization of our societies and our government. Um, and I will get way, I'll get way deeper into that when we get kind of... Because by the end of this kind of American Renaissance series, I'm going to get to the Founding Fathers. And we'll talk about how they drew from these ideas and how we still kind of like are organized this this way today. I mean, for crying out loud, we have two major political parties. One of them is called the Democrats, and they favor a more democratic style. The other is called the Republicans, and they favor a more republic style of government. And 99% of people don't even understand what that means. But 
I don't want to get ahead of myself. That's on the political science side. And we are talking mostly about philosophy and the ideas. And for Roman philosophy, in the Republic, uh, we need to look at another guy. And this guy's name was Cicero. And Cicero was a, a Roman senator in kind of the late Republic. And when he was writing, the Republic was on its way out. And the Republic was getting to the point of uh, crumbling by that point. But Cicero was a, was a true believer in the Republic form of government. And he drew a whole bunch of inspiration from Plato for a lot of his ideas. Now, he wrote a dialogue, and it's called On the Laws. And he named it, he even named On the Laws after Plato's dialogue by the same name. And so next I want to read some Cicero, and then we'll talk about what, uh, what Cicero thought. Now, Cicero writes, just like Plato, it's a, it's a dialogue between you know, teacher and student. And so I'm not going to read who the, you know, who's the teacher and who's the response, but I'll just let you kind of gather it. So he's, he writes, And you're quite right, for I take, for take my word for it, in no such kind of discussion can it be more advantageously displayed how much has been bestowed upon man by nature, and how great a capacity for the noblest enterprises is implanted in the mind of man for the sake of cultivating and perfecting which is born and sent to the world, and what beautiful association, what natural fellowship binds men together by reciprocal charities. And when we have explained these grand and universal principles of morals, then the true fountain of laws and rights can be discovered. So, what Cicero is talking about is the law. Uh, and one of his students, the, the part I left out before I started reading was one of his students says, let's, you know, tell us about, um, you know, what you think about the law system. And so this is, uh, this is Cicero explaining the laws. And then one of his students says, in your opinion, then, is it not the edict of the magistrate, as the majority of our modern lawyers pretend, nor the twelve tables, as the ancients maintained, but it is the sublimest doctrines of philosophy, that we must seek the true source and the obligation of jurisprudence. So he asked, he's asking him if uh, the true nature of what is right and wrong does it not come from philosophy and not from the the written law or the old Roman ancient law? It continues. For in this discussion of ours, we are not inquiring how we may take proper caution in the law, or what we are to answer in each consultation that may indeed be important affair, as in truth it is. And at one time it was supported by many great men, and then is present my expounded by one most eminent lawyer with admirable ability and skill. But the whole subject of universal law and jurisprudence must be comprehended in the discussion, in order that which we call civil law may be confined in some one small and narrow space of nature. For we shall have to explain the true nature of moral justice, which must be traced back to the nature of man." And laws will have to be considered by which all political states should be governed. And last of all, shall we have to speak of those 
laws and customs of nations which are framed for the use and the convenience of particular countries, in which even our own people will not be omitted, which are known by the title of civil laws. So what he's saying, basically, is that uh, we're, gonna, we're going to talk about what the law like should be and the true nature of moral justice, he says. And he's tracing this back to, again, the nature of man. And he's borrowing these ideas from Plato uh, of what is the, the nature of mankind. And uh, this latch, he says, or this part where he says, all political states should be governed. He's Cicero is making this claim that like uh, there is a system of laws that is natural that all states should kind of be governed by, and it is it is different than the civil laws. Uh, and then one of his students, Quintus, says, You take a noble view of the subject, my brother, and go to the fountainhead in order to throw light on the subject of our consideration. And those who treat civil law in any other manner are not so much pointing out the paths of justice as those of litigation. What he means by that is if, if the people who are in charge of the civil law are focusing the civil law on anything else than the moral law, they are just kind of arguing sublantics. I don't even know if sublantics is a word. But he's saying that the point of the civil law should be a, a taking of moral law and putting it into writing. But uh, Cicero says that's not quite the case. Uh, it's not so much by the science of the law that produces litigation as the ignorance of it. But more of this by and by. At present, let us examine first the principles of right. So, he's talking about right and wrong. He's not talking about legal and illegal. And then he says, I will not detain you long. This is the bearing which they have had on our subject. This animal, prescient, sagacious, complex, acute, full of memory, reason, and counsel, which we call man has been generated by the supreme God in a most transcendent condition, for he is the only creature among all the races and descriptions of animated beings who is endured with superior reason and thought, in which the rest are deficient. And what is there, I do not say in man alone, but in all of heaven and earth, more divine than reason, which when it becomes right and perfect is justly termed wisdom." There exists, therefore, since nothing is better than reason, and since this is the common property of God and man, a certain aboriginal rational intercourse between the divine and the human natures. But where reason is common, there is right reason must also be common to the same parties, and since this right reason is what we call law, God and man must be considered as associated by law. This is super important. Um, his, his point here is that, and this goes back to Plato's chariot. He's saying that, that man and God share some sort of common property. He calls it a certain aboriginal rational intercourse. Now, aboriginal means kind of native and primitive and there forever. Rational is, of course, 
you know, the definition of rational. And then intercourse is a, is a joining. Cicero is saying that there is a, there is a native, inherent, reasonable joining between the divine nature and the human nature. Because humans are the only animal that is capable of reason. And then he says, but where reason is common, there right reason must also be common to the same properties. And since this right reason is what we call law, God and men must be considered associated by law. He is saying that God and man are not just associated in this kind of transcendent, kind of mystical way. He's saying that uh, we get our ideas on law from God. That's what Cicero is saying. This is, this is the idea of natural law, and we'll get in way deeper to natural law as we go along. All right, next he says, again, there must also be a communion of right where there is a communion of law. And those who have law and right thus in common must be considered members of the same commonwealth. He's saying what is right and wrong must be kind of in agreement with the law. And if you have the law and the, the right in common, you are members of the same commonwealth, means like citizens of the same republic. And if they are obedient to the same rule and the same authority, they are even much more so to this one celestial regency, this divine mind and omnipotent deity, so that the entire universe may be looked upon as forming one vast commonwealth of gods and men. And as in earthly states, certain ranks are distinguished with reverence to the relationships of families according to the certain principle which will be discussed in its proper place, that principle in the nature of things is far more magnificent and splendid by which men are connected with the gods." as belonging to their kindred and nation. Okay. This is the foundation of natural law. And when... I'm going to jump way forward and go to 1776, when Thomas Jefferson is writing in the Declaration, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. He is not just he's not just quoting John Locke. He is talking about this idea of Cicero's that doesn't just come from Cicero. It goes all the way back to kind of Plato and the Greeks and all that. This is what he's talking about. Um, when when the founders are talking about natural rights, that's not something they made up. This is something that that goes deep and far back in history. All right, let me read some more here. He says, For when we are reasoning on universal nature, we are accustomed to argue, and indeed the truth is, just as it's stated in the argument, that in the long course of ages, in the uninterrupted succession of celestial revolutions, there arrived a certain ripe time for the sowing of the human race. And when it was sown and scattered over the earth, it was animated by the divine gift of souls. And as men retained from their terrestrial origin those other particulars by which they cohere together, which are frail and perishable, 
their immortal spirits were inter intergenerated with the deity. From which circumstances it may be truly said that we possess certain consanguinity and kindred and fellowship with the heavenly powers. And among all the varieties of animals, there is not one except man which retains any idea of divinity. And among men themselves, there is no nation so savage and ferocious as to not to admit to the necessity of believing in a god. However ignorant they may be of what sort of god they ought to believe in. I really like this part. Because this is Cicero writing in, you know, I don't know, this is before 44 BC. So this is before Christ is born. And he is, he's writing about how silly it would be if a, uh, a civilization denied the, the existence of, uh, of God or believing in God. He says that you would have to be so savage and ferocious of a civilization to even conceive of the idea of not believing in God, which I think is kind of funny because... We're in 2022, and the so-called most civilized of our our countries completely reject the idea of God, and we think of ourselves as the most civilized of everyone. You know, while we while we murder millions and millions of babies every year by abortion. But I said I wasn't going to get too political, so I'm gonna I'm gonna steer away from that if I can. Uh, now, what he says before that is the same thing Plato is saying in the chariot. It's this idea of mankind as having a divine kind of kinship with with God in a way. And it's the same as the Christian idea as, you know, man being made in God's image. And again, like these are guys that were born, these are guys that are writing before Christ is even born. And they're tapping in to this, to this trueness that uh, later Jesus will explain better than anyone ever explained it. The these guys are tapping into the same kind of inherent truth that Christ will talk about when he comes along. And I don't think that uh, you know that doesn't that doesn't cheapen uh, the truth of Christ in any way. I think it just like further proves that there are certain inherent truths that are so obvious if you if you just sit and observe the natural world that you, you they can't be denied and this is what he means when he say like you there's no nation so savage as not to admit this necessity um and yet here we are all right more now the law of virtue is the same in god and man and in no other disposition besides them this virtue is nothing else than a nature perfect in itself and wrought up to the most consummate excellence. There exists, therefore, a similitude between God and man. And in this case, what connection can there be which concerns us more nearly and is more certain? Therefore, nature has supplied such an abundance of supplies suited to the convenience and use of men that the things which are thus produced appear to be designedly bestowed upon us and not fortuitous productions, 
nor does this observation apply only to the fruits and vegetables which gush from the bosom of the earth, but likewise the cattle and the beasts of the field, some of which, it is clear, were intended for the use of mankind, others for propagation, others for the food of man. Innumerable arts have likewise been discovered by the teachings of nature, whom reason has imitated, and thus skillfully discovered all things necessary to the happiness of life. In this portion, he's kind of just expounding on this idea of of how backward and savage you would have to be to not understand and believe in a God. And his, his argument is like, there are so many things on earth that are completely perfect for the use of mankind that it doesn't make sense that it was all an accident, to put it in, in kind of simple terms. And I think I think this is part of the reason for the... The big uh, push of atheism in the modern world, like w- people are so f- so far removed from the natural world that they never even see it. And this is why I think that like uh, everybody who's vegan is somebody who like lives in the middle of you know a metro. There's there's no there's very few like rural vegans, right? And then the people who are so obsessed with the idea that we are just destroying all the earth and there's no wilderness left and the rainforests are all gone and there's there's nowhere but city. All of these people live in the city and they never leave it. We are we are so removed from from our food, from our energy, from from everything that gives us our way of life, we're so far removed from it that we don't appreciate how how amazingly it is just made for us. We we don't appreciate that like, you know, corn grows out of the ground because most people don't don't think about it in that in those terms. Most people go to the store and they buy, you know, hamburger meat and they don't think about how they don't think about the fact that cattle are like the the perfect domestic animal for a for a food source they have so much meat on them they're so i mean comparatively to their ancestors they're so docile that it's that it's silly and we we don't think about those type of things anymore because we're just so far removed from it all right um with respect to man, the same bountiful nature hath not merely allotted him a subtle and active spirit, but also a physical sense, like so many servants and messengers, and she has laid bare before him the obscure but necessary explanation of many things, which are, as it were, the foundation of practical knowledge, and in all respects she has given him the convenient figure of body suited to the bent of the human character." For while she has kept down the countenances of other animals and fixed their eyes on their food, she has bestowed on man alone an erect stature and prompted him to be in contemplation of heaven, the ancient home of his kindred immortals. So exquisitely, too, has she fashioned the features of the human face as to make them indicate the most recondite thoughts and sentiments. For our eloquent eyes speak forth every impulse and passion of our souls, and that which we call expression, which cannot exist in any other animal but man, betrays all our feelings, the power of which was well known to the Greeks, though they have no name for it.
So this again, he's talking about mankind must be related to the gods in some way because we have, unlike other animals, like you, you see our divinity in our faces and our, not just our divinity, like you can see the divine spark in someone's eyes and you can also see like that heart of darkness in someone's eyes and where you can't really, you can't really see that in an animal. I don't care how how much you think your dog has a thousand different expressions he doesn't he has like three or four and they're like hungry happy and anxious right like i know that your dog you think your dog's a person but he's not um the the expressions of humans are not shared by other animals yes animals can look like can look sad and happy and angry and that's about it and there's there's so much more of a spectrum for humans all right, I'm starting to get off topic again. Um, all right, what's next? But there is no expiation for the crimes and impieties of men. The guilty, therefore, must pay the penalty and bear the punishment, not so much those punishments inflicted by the courts of justice, which are not always in being, do not exist at present in many places, and even where established are frequently biased and partial, but those of conscience... While the furies pursue the torment them, not with burning torches as the poets feign, but with the remorse of conscience and the torture arising from guilt. He's saying again that like uh, humans are the only animal that feels some sort of guilt. Like there is no uh, when a lion eats a baby gazelle, he doesn't feel bad about it, right? And we look at that and we think that's very sad when we watch it on Animal Planet. But uh, the lion doesn't feel that way because the lion is not acting out of wickedness. But, you know, we would be if we were murdering and eating a baby. And if we do that sort of thing, unless we are like the, the very, very small percentage of like sociopaths and psychopaths, if we do something like that, we are, we are racked with guilt. And it might not come right away. It might not even come, you know in a couple of years, but eventually that, that guilt in your conscience catches up with you. And he's, he's making a, he's making the implication or he's making the, the case that that is a, that is some sort of proof of our, of our somewhat divin- divinity piece of our souls, basically. All right. But were it the fear of punishment, and not the nature of the thing itself, that ought to restrain mankind from wickedness, what, I would ask, could give villains the least uneasiness abstracting from all fears of this kind? And yet none of them was ever so audaciously impudent, but what he either denied that his action in question had been committed by him, or pretended some cause or other for his indignation, or sought a defense of his deed in some right of nature." And if the wicked dare to appeal to this principle, with what respect ought not good men to treat them? So, seeing the very fact that we deny that we did something or that we make up excuses that we did something is, is proof of this. But if either the direct punishment or the fear of it be what deters men from a vicious and criminal course of life, and not the turpitude of the thing itself, then none can be guilty of injustice, and the greatest offenders ought rather be called imprudent than wicked. 
On the other hand, those among us who are determined to be in the practice of goodness, not by its own intrinsic excellence, but for the sake of some private advantage, are cunning rather than good men. For what will not a man do in the dark, who fears nothing but a witness and a judge? Should he meet a solitary individual in a desert place, whom he can rob of a large sum of money, and altogether unable to defend himself from being robbed, how will he behave? In such a case our man, who is just and honorable from principle and the nature of the thing itself, will converse with the stranger, assist him, and show him the way. But he who does nothing for the sake of another, and measures everything by the advantage it brings himself, it is obvious, I suppose, how such a one will act. And should he deny that he would kill the man or rob him of his treasure, his reason for this cannot be that he apprehends that there is a moral turpitude to such actions, but only because he is afraid of discovery. That is to say that bad consequences will thence ensue a sentiment in this at which not only a learned man, but even clowns, must blush. It is therefore an absurd extravagance in some philosophers to assert that all things are necessarily just, which are established by the civil laws, and the institutions of nations. Are then the laws of tyrants just, simply because they are laws? Suppose the thirty tyrants of Athens had imposed certain laws on the Athenians, or suppose again that these Athenians were delighted with these tyrannical laws. Would these laws on that account have been considered just? For my own part, I do not think such laws deserve any greater estimation than that passed during our own integrum which ordained that a dictator should be empowered to put to death with impunity whatever, whatever citizens he pleased, without hearing in them their own defense. All right, now, this is getting to the kind of the important meat of what Cicero is saying. He's saying that uh, the, the existence of a simple law written down doesn't make the law just. And he says that the people who say that are, it's absurd. It's absurd to say that a law is correct simply because it is written down and a law. And this is something that I think that, uh, I think sometimes, uh, I wasn't going to get political. I guess I will for just a second. I think that sometimes the right has a problem with this, especially the people who are uh, diehard kind of back the police no matter what. This idea that, well, you should always follow the law no matter what. Um, n- none of our kind of great philosophers of all of Western civilization would agree with any of you. No, None of them would agree with that sentiment of like, oh, well, if it's the law, then you must follow it because it's the right thing. That is That is clownish. And that's what Cicero is saying. And he's making the point that like, well, when Athens was ruled by tyrants, just because they passed these laws didn't make them right. When uh, when Rome is run by a dictator, that doesn't make the the actions of the dictator putting to death anybody he wants without any sort of hearing, that doesn't make it right just because it is legal, which is an idea that... I don't know. I I don't know how people don't understand that, but for some reason, it seems like people still don't. All right, I'm going to glaze over some more of this because I'm starting to get towards kind of where I want to end my time. Let's jump to this. But if nature does not ratify law, then all the virtues may lose their sway. 
for what becomes of generosity, patriotism, or friendship? Where will the desire of befitting our neighbors or the gratitude that acknowledges kindness be able to exist, if at all? For all these virtues proceed from our natural inclination to love mankind, and this is the true basis of justice. And without this, not only the mutual charities of men, but the religious services of the gods would be at an end. For these are preserved, as I imagine, rather by the natural sympathies which subsist between the divine and the human beings than by mere fear and timidity. Glaze over a little more. For if opinion could determine respecting the character of the universal virtue, it might also decide respecting particular or partial virtues. But who will dare to determine that a man is prudent and cautious, not from his general conduct but from external appearances? For virtue evidently consists in perfect reason, and this certainly resides in nature. Therefore, so does all honor and honesty in the same way. For as what is true and false, credible and discredible, is judged of rather by the essential qualities than the external relations, so is the consistent and perpetual course of life, which is virtue, and the inconsistency of life, which is vice, are judged of according to their own nature, and that the inconsistency must be necessarily vicious. Alright, so, like I said before, this is what we mean when we talk about natural law. This, it starts in Greece, it makes its way through Rome and all the way to America in 1776. When Jefferson writes about the... the universal truths he's writing about natural law it is a chain of ideas that goes all the way back to the greeks and the romans and uh, cicero is who the founding fathers were reading plato cicero socrates all these other guys of the the old greeks and the romans that's who they were reading and that is why we should read and understand them as well they tell us who we are and what we believe as a people. I think I told you this earlier, but Cicero writes this at the very end of the Roman Republic. And the Roman Republic had grown kind of fat and lazy and corrupt. The Senate had become less of a collection of representatives of the people and more a bunch of corrupt creatures of Rome itself. They stopped doing their intended job in a lot of ways. And they kind of forgot their the purpose of their republic. And if that doesn't sound familiar to you, you haven't been paying attention. So did the Roman people, though. The Roman people were more worried about, like, the Colosseum, the gladiator fights, the chariot races, the entertainment. They were more worried about the free bread that was given out by the government. This is where the term bread and circuses come from. Also, that should sound familiar to you because you can see the parallels in your own country. Now, at this time, along comes Julius Caesar. And Julius Caesar was huge. He was larger than life. He was famous. He was charismatic. Uh, The common people loved him. And they wanted to make him king. 
and Caesar knew how to manipulate the masses into supporting him. He knew that he could use the mob to gain political power. All he had to do was to point at the state of Rome and blame the Senate. And he says the Senate doesn't get anything done. They're all corrupt. They don't speak for the people. And by that point, he he was right about a lot of that. But then, then Caesar says, if you give me the power, I will make Rome great and I'll give you all kinds of goodies. And that's when the the last handful of Roman senators that actually believe in the spirit and philosophical ideas of the Roman Republic, they rise up against him. They're led by Cassius and Brutus and they assassinate Julius Caesar. They do it to save the Roman Republic. That is their that is their goal. But it doesn't work. It's all for naught because Octavius and Mark Anthony, Octavius is Julius Caesar's, I think like I don't know, nephew or maybe like a, I don't know, some relation. And Mark Anthony's like his best friend. These two guys rise up against the conspirators and Rome falls into this big civil war. And Octavius and Anthony They win the civil war. Uh, They kill Cassius and Brutus. The Republic, the Roman Republic dies. And what is one of the first things that Octavius and Mark Anthony do once they have kind of taken the reins of power after the death of Julius Caesar? Well, they put a whole lot of senators to death. And one of the first ones they put to death is Cicero. Now, it wasn't because Cicero was part of the conspiracy, because he wasn't. They put Cicero to death because Cicero is dangerous. Tyrants fear guys like Cicero, because just as, just as the Greek government put Socrates to death, so does this new kind of Roman triumvirate, the tyrants. They do the same for Cicero. And... By the end of the Roman Republic, you have, this is, Cicero writes this right before the end of the Roman Republic, and then he's, he's put to death just like Socrates, because what he's saying is dangerous to the people who want to hang on to their power. And uh, the end of the Roman Republic, though, is not the end of, it's not the end of Rome. It's the beginning of the Roman Empire. And in our in our culture in western civilization we also get a lot of lessons from the roman empire too now some of them are good a lot of them are bad uh but we we need to talk about that too but i i i think this is where i want to end this is definitely going to be more than one part i'm trying to keep these at about an hour so um this is a good place to end part one we we had plato and cicero we had these ideas that built uh, Greek and Roman thought. We have Greek democracy. We have the Roman Republic. Um, and then finally you have this, uh, the, the powers that be. You go back to Plato in the cave. The, the guys who are trying to enlighten are never met. Guys like Socrates and Plato and Cicero and Jesus Christ they are never met with like open arms, especially by the people who are in in power, especially by the governments of the places where they're they're inhabiting. They're never met with open arms. They are always met 
with uh, disdain and usually with death. I mean, look at, uh, you have Socrates in Greece, you have Cicero in Rome, you have, you know, Jesus Christ on the cross. The, all of these guys are, are put to death because they are, they are teaching ideas to the people that make the, the powerful nervous. And when you make the powerful scared that you might convince the people to take away their power, that is when the government comes down and chops your head off. And that is a, that is a simple, timeless, historical truth. And it's, that didn't stop being the truth. This still happens to this very day. And if you don't think that, uh, if you don't think that can still happen, then you haven't been paying close enough attention. So, uh, thanks for listening. I will end part one here. In part two, we will talk about the Roman Empire. We'll talk about, uh, we'll probably talk about guys like Marcus Aurelius and Seneca and some others. I don't know how far part two will get. Maybe we'll get all the way through the Roman Empire and we'll jump right into the, uh, the early Middle Ages and we'll start getting into that Judeo-Christian moral thought and Jesus Christ because the fall of the Roman Republic happens 44 years before the birth of Christ. So the next thing that happens, you know, Cicero dies in 43 BC and then 43 years later, along comes Jesus. So that's probably what we'll pick up next time. I'm not sure yet. I haven't written it. I haven't thought about it. We'll just play her by ear. So have a good night. I'll talk to you next time.